This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, March 28, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. The Supreme Court nomination hearings of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson are over. Now the Senate will weigh what they know and have heard about the judge's record and judicial philosophy. Cato's Tommy Berry and Jay Schweikert discuss the hearings and what comes next. There are many legitimate criticisms of the process of even having hearings for uh, potential Supreme Court nominees. Uh, I think the hearings for Kentanji Brown Jackson uh, to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court contained a lot of the things that we're used to seeing um, that, that have come to typify, I think, Supreme Court hearings in the past. But of course, there was some substantive discussion uh, of issues, issues that might come before the court, issues of judicial philosophy. So uh, to you, uh, Tommy, I'll start with you. What jumped out at you as being a discussion that you were looking forward to that actually occurred? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'll say definitely I most enjoyed her dialogue with Senator Ben Sass uh, of Nebraska, who asked some substantive questions about judicial philosophy and essentially the debates uh, between an originalist approach to interpreting the Constitution that looks to the original public meaning of the text versus sort of a purposivist uh, approach, which looks to the original principles embodied in the text, um, but perhaps tries to update those principles to deal with modern problems. And surprisingly, even though Judge Jackson clerked for Justice Breyer, she admitted that Justice Breyer has essentially lost uh, that debate to Justice Scalia and that the majority of the court clearly follows the originalist approach. And so in that dialogue and in answers to several other senators, uh, she affirmed that she would follow the originalist approach of looking to the original public meaning of the law of the Constitution or a statute at the time it was enacted. And it's really striking that uh, an approach that was seen in the late 80s when Robert Bork was nominated as fringe and potentially disqualifying is now so uncontroversial that it's uh, that it's supported by Republican and Democratic nominees alike. Uh, Jay, that had to have jumped out at you as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it indicates that textualism and originalism have have won pretty much. Now, I think that it's, you know, there are a lot of questions that are not answered just by embracing a high-level abstract view of interpreting the text as it would have been understood at the time of its enactment. Um, So I don't think we should expect that, oh, therefore, she's likely to agree with Justice Thomas on a lot of object-level issues. But in terms of what is the general way that judges should go about giving meaning to legal text, um, it's, it's, it's definitely changed quite dramatically. I, I mean, one uh, item of note is that she categorically rejected uh, the use of international law or foreign law in interpreting um, the Constitution and sort of clarified that the only times that would be appropriate would be with things like treaties that explicitly call upon judges to understand international law. And that, of course, is something that uh, has divided the court um, on several constitutional questions like the death penalty uh, and when it's applicable over the last several years. Right. If you expect that uh, a justice, uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, would simply agree with everyone else, we've had multiple cases before the U.S. Supreme Court where the majority opinion read it as, as an originalist one and the other opinions that disagreed were also s- appeared to lay claim to being the 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 one true originalism. So it's not uh, we would not necessarily see people agreeing across the board. Uh, Tommy, with respect to your 
uh, portfolio here at the Cato Institute, what else uh, spoke to you? Was there was there really anything surprising? Not too much. There was a bit of news made. She was asked at one point explicitly if she plans to recuse from next term's case dealing with affirmative action policies at Harvard, on which she's served on one of the boards for many years. And she said, yes, that is her plan. So that was essentially the only concrete, uh, significant piece of news that came out of this hearing. One thing that's still left open is whether she plans to recuse from the companion case dealing with University of North Carolina. Um, but that does at least uh, significantly potentially affect the vote breakdown of, of that upcoming Harvard case. There was some discussion of uh, unenumerated rights. She essentially sort of articulated the current Supreme Court test of looking to uh, deeply rooted history and traditions as a way of constraining um, that approach. It's not exactly the most up-to-date, cutting-edge uh, originalist uh, theory of unenumerated rights that perhaps a Randy Barnett would support, um, but it well articulated the mainstream constitutional approach currently applied. Um, one thing I was not crazy about when she was asked about the Commerce Clause and the limits on constitutional power, she described the history saying originally uh, the executive branch's uh, federal government's power was extremely broad, and then it had recently been narrowed by cases in the late 90s. Uh, that's uh, true as far as it goes, but that history is a bit limited. She essentially started her history in the 1930s. Um, I wish she had gone back further to before then, when in fact the Commerce Clause was seen as a more significant limit on federal power. Jay? Um, yeah, I, I was I was uh, struck by the sen various senators' interest in really digging into the unenumerated rights question. Well, I think it, what it revealed maybe more about how the Senate, some of the Senate Judiciary Republicans look at this issue rather than Judge Jackson is there's it really reveals this conflict where um you know republican senators often profess this belief in textualism and originalism and judges have to follow the constitution no matter what their views and never they then nevertheless seem to be saying oh but we don't really want judges to enforce the provisions of the constitution that spell out the protection for so-called unenumerated rights namely the ninth amendment and the 14th amendment whether through the privileges or immunities clause or the due process clause um so I, you know, I was just like pulling my hair out listening to that discussion. Um, but I, I agree with Tommy that, you know, her answers were pretty standard, you know, recitations of what the Supreme Court has said about substantive due process. Um, I would have, I would, you know, love to see the court focus more on the privileges or immunities clause in that sense. But that's not the sort of thing we expected her to get into in this hearing. Right. It, it, you know, it's, it's, uh, actually refreshing in a Supreme Court nomination hearing when you actually get to a substantive question about parts of the Constitution and how people uh, think about them. Uh, Jay, yeah, you you make note of the fact that the Ninth Amendment is a part of the text of the U.S. of the of the Bill of Rights and um, the Fourteenth Amendment as well. And so Republicans do seem to have difficulty um, reconciling those amendments that they see, appear not to know what to do with um, in, in their minds and in considering what rights are, what rights aren't, and whether or not rights could uh, appear perhaps to them out of nowhere. So uh, with respect to criminal justice, of course, Ketanji Brown-Jackson has this background of having worked on the U.S. Sentencing Commission, having been a public defender. She wrote uh, a piece when she was at Harvard Law School about uh, criminal trials. What from those, uh, from that background of hers, what productive 
uh, questions and answers were asked and given? Um, un unfortunately, I don't think there were a lot of productive questions asked about her criminal justice background. I mean, let's start with her um, college thesis, um, The Hand of Oppression, which discussed the problem of coercive plea bargaining. Now, now, I mean, to be fair, you know, it's maybe there's a little bit of risk in reading too much into a nominee's college writings. But if you look at this paper, it's a really thorough, thoughtful paper on how the plea bargaining process in this country has become inherently coercive. And what she, one of the things that she did that was very interesting in that paper is, is apply the doctrine of unconstitutional conditions to plea bargaining. So in other areas of law, you would see, you know, there are questions like, can you have a recipient of welfare benefits give up various constitutional rights to receive those? And, um, you know, the Supreme Court's doctrine has been pretty exacting in terms of uh, you know, limiting the government's ability to condition benefits on people giving up their constitutional rights. But if you apply that doctrine to the jury trial and, and the pressure that is exerted on people to give up their jury trial rights, um, it really, you know, leads to the conclusion that this is in large part unconstitutional. And that's a pretty I mean, I don't think I mean, that's a that's a radical position compared to the Supreme Court's current endorsement of coercive plea bargaining. It's certainly not radical in comparison to the Constitution, in my view. But this would have been something really important and substantive to, to talk about. Um, and basically, no one did. Um, to my recollection, the only time this was brought up was was Senator Blackburn, who quibbled with her use of uh, a particular, like the way she described the bias that all judges have, and and Judge Jackson sort of disclaimed that phrasing of it because she was in college and that doesn't really reflect her views now. And then they moved on. So there was really no discussion of this fundamental question about coercive plea bargaining. And I think what that reflects in part is just how firmly established that practice is in our current criminal justice system. It's not the sort of thing that divides Republicans and Democrats. They basically all agree that prosecutors are within their rights to exert, you know, any and all pressure available to them on defendants to give up their trial rights. Um, so I was I was sad that there wasn't a more interesting discussion there. Um, but I think, you know, it remains one of the things that I think is most interesting about Judge Jackson's nomination and um, a perspective that I certainly hope she brings to the Supreme Court if have confirmed as she seems likely to be. Is there anything else that we learned in these hearings? And in, in your view, was it really worth three days uh, of uh, public time? I'll say it definitely wasn't worth three days. You could condense the substantive discussions that were fruitful down to probably three hours, and that might be generous. Uh, I thought Judge Jackson was most impressive when asked about specific cases in her record. Uh, she showed a, a clear memory and a clear ability to explain why these cases are complicated. Uh, she went toe-to-toe -to -toe with both Senator Grassley and Senator Graham on a case called Make the Road New York. Uh, they both tried to accuse her of essentially judicial activism and reviewing a, a statute that explicitly said it was unreviewable. And she explained the nuanced way in which it interacts with the Administrative Procedure Act and judges have to look at multiple texts, not just one sentence taken out of context. So when given a chance to actually discuss and explain decisions on her record, um, you know, it, it was an educational experience for people watching and a chance to to see how she thinks about cases. But usually she was either not asked real questions at all, at all or asked to speculate on upcoming decisions that obviously she can't comment on. 
Uh, it, as of this recording, the hearings just wrapped up yesterday. We're recording this on a Friday, uh, and it will be, I think, more than a week uh, uh, until the the final Senate vote. Is that Mitch McConnell has said he's not going to support her. Um, Joe Manchin says he will support her. In terms of drawing partisan lines, that seems like uh, a pretty clear break. Uh, do you have any expectations about uh, the the end result of this nomination? You know, I don't purport to be an expert on uh, where the you know senators on the line are going to fall. I would I would expect that it's going to be mostly partisan. I would expect she would get at least a few Republican votes. Um, it does seem clear that, you know, some of the, you know, Republican senators who plan on voting against her really were just looking for an excuse to do so. I mean, I believe Judge McConnell, you know, excuse me, Senator uh, Mitch McConnell relied on the fact that she didn't, you know, commit, she didn't state her opposition to court packing, whereas, of course, uh, Justice Barrett didn't either. So, you know, it sort of rings hollow. And I think it just really reflects the unfortunate state of affairs we're in where, um, you know, it's sort of a purely partisan theater um, it, but yeah, I would expect her to, to draw at least a few Republican votes, uh, you know, especially because as we discussed at the beginning, in terms of basic judicial philosophy, although she didn't, you know, label herself a textualist or an originalist, her approach to interpreting legal text pretty much fell along those lines. So, I, I mean, I think that there's a limit to how, uh, easily someone could characterize her as a so-called judicial activist because her answers really don't reflect anything like that approach to judging. Yeah, I'd just add, I think the baseline to look at was 53 votes. That's what she got for the D.C. Circuit. But that included Lindsey Graham, who essentially complained during the whole hearings that his favorite judge from South Carolina wasn't picked. So he seemed to be setting himself up to have an excuse not to vote for her this time. So right now, if I had to guess, I'd, I'd guess 52. Tommy Berry and Jay Schweikert are research fellows at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.